Well, good morning again. Hey, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. If you don't, there should be a few scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And if you want to turn to Acts chapter 1, we'll be looking at uh, oh, about four different passages in uh, Luke's account of the life and birth of the early church. We'll be in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 4, and Luke chapter, Luke, Acts. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 13. Hey, here's the connection. Luke wrote the book of Acts. So there you go. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to begin as we wrap up our... uh, our fall sermon series entitled, Teach Us to Pray. We've been focusing on corporate prayer, and we'll continue to do that. So let's do that together then as we, as we uh, prepare to hear the Word of God. Let's pray together, church. Father, we pray now that you would come in power and that your Holy Spirit would be am- among us, uh, enlightening our eyes and our mind to the truth that you have preserved in the Word of God. We're so grateful for this book that sits in front of us, that you are a God who speaks that you have revealed yourself to us, and we're reminded in the book of Hebrews that you spoke in many different ways uh, to our ancestors, and yet in these days you have spoken to us chiefly through the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect life lived in obedience for our imperfect, sinful life, his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, and his powerful resurrection as he defeated sin and Satan and death. And he has paved the way for us to have eternal life, both now and with you forever. And we are grateful that this gift comes to us not because of any good works that we could do or any merit that we could muster, but that we can come to have eternal life through faith and faith alone in your Son, Jesus, and that we can be born again through that gospel to a living hope. Father, we pray now, as we've been focusing on prayer these past several weeks, both individual prayer and now as we've been looking at corporate prayer, I pray that you would teach us what it looks like to be a praying church. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Well, one Sunday morning, there were five young college students who uh, lived in London, England, and they happened to hear of a famed preacher of many years ago by the name of H.C. Spurgeon, or Charles Spurgeon, and they wanted to go hear this famous preacher preach. So they found their way to his church, and while they were waiting for the doors of that church to open, they were greeted by a man, and he said, gentlemen... Let me show you around. And so they entered the building with him. And then he asked them sort of a weird question. He said, would you like to see the heating plant of this church? Well, the question sort of caught them off guard. They weren't particularly interested in seeing the heating plant of the church, but they didn't want to be rude, and so they agreed. So the young men were led led down a stairway, and a door was quietly opened, and their guide whispered, Uh, these words to them. He said, look, gentlemen, this is our heating plant. Surprised, the four students saw a room where 700 men and women gathered with heads bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin, of course, in the sanctuary above them. The man softly closed the door, and then, of course, he introduced himself, and it was none other than the pastor the great Charles Spurgeon himself. 
Well, needless to say, Charles Spurgeon's church was a praying church. And this morning, as we continue to look at corporate prayer in the book of Acts, we're going to see that the early church was also a praying church. It was characterized by both private and, in particular, corporate prayer. So the question that I want us to begin with is, are we? Are we marked by corporate prayer? Prayer is undoubtedly one of the major themes that is woven throughout the book of Acts. As the word prayer in its various forms is found some 32 times in the 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Of course, averaging one time, more than one, one time per chapter. The great pastor and author Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, in almost every chapter in the book of Acts, you find a reference to prayer. And the book makes it very clear that something happens, friends, something happens when God's people pray. And so I just want to share with you a few references to prayer in the book of Acts. It would take, well, the whole sermon if I went through every single reference, but I just want to give us a taste of the frequency of prayer in the life of the early church. And so it begins in chapter 1. The disciples pray together for a replacement for Judas, chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. As we make our way into chapter 2, we see that the, the, the life of the church, the general rhythm of the church, is marked with constant prayer. As we move into chapter 3, we see Peter and John, they go into the temple during the hour of prayer. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, the church prays together in response to opposition. They pray for boldness and they receive that boldness. Chapter 4, as we move into chapter 6, we see that the church prays for uh, God's blessing on select leaders and the apostles say, we're going to devote ourselves to the word and corporate prayer. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. We see him praying for those who are murdering him in chapter 7. As we move on to chapter 8, Peter and John pray with the saints in Samaria to receive the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. Peter prays and he sees a woman rise from the dead, chapter 9. As we make our way into chapter 10, we see, of course, Cornelius is a man of prayer. And God sends Peter to him so that he can hear the gospel. Chapter 12, the church prays for and receives a miraculous deliverance uh, from Peter as he's in jail. Chapter 13, the church is fasting, and the church is worshiping, and the church is praying, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for a new missionary work that I want to begin. Chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in a local church, and they pray for those elders. Chapter 20, Paul prays with the pastors in the church of Ephesus before going to the city of Jerusalem. And friends, this is just, this is just some of the references that we see in the book of Acts. And so I want to impress upon us this simple observation that the early church was a praying church, and that the early church prayed together. And so I'll reiterate the question, do we? Do we pray together? Are we a praying church? So we're going to focus on four examples, four examples of corporate prayer in the life of the early church. So if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 26, we'll really focus in on verse 24. I think the first thing that we see the church praying for corporately 
is that they gather together to pray for guidance. They seek the Lord's will in a particular decision that needed to be made. So we pick up in Acts chapter 1, where we left off last week, starting in verse 15. The story begins with Peter. Of course, he is the leader of the disciples, and so he stands up among the church. We're told that the church was uh, roughly 120 people at this point in time, so about, about the size of the gathering you know, that comes here. 120 people. P- Peter stands up and he says, Listen, the, the scripture tells us that we need to replace Judas Iscariot amongst the twelve apostles. And so Peter says the, the, the Holy Spirit is telling us through the word of God. He cites Psalm 69. He cites Psalm uh, 109. And he says the scripture must be fulfilled. It's necessary, if you want to look at verse 21, it's necessary, he says, to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. In verse 22, he says, For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You'll recall back in chapter 1 from last week, verse 8, that Jesus says, You will be my, what? Witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. And so Peter says, Hey, we need a twelfth. And so what are they going to do? How, how do they know who is the man of God's choice. And so two men emerge out of the congregation, Joseph and Matthias. And then in verse 24, we see the church seeking the Lord's guidance. They want God to make it clear which one of these two men it should be. So let's pick up in verse 24. Then they prayed corporately together, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Well, I'm not exactly sure we're going to be casting lots to determine who the next deacons will be. We live on this side of Pentecost. But God providentially, he sovereignly led the lot to fall on Matthias and so answered their prayer for guidance. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, we too at Grace Bible Church need to seek the Lord's direction. We need to seek the Lord's guidance for every decision, big and small. We need to do so in everything that we do, including choosing of leaders, but not limited to the choosing of leaders. We need to seek the Lord's face in the big and the small. Robert Stein, in his commentary on Luke, he says this. He says, Prayer prayer preceded every major decision or crisis in the life of Jesus, number one, and the life of the early church. Prayer preceded every major decision in the life of Jesus, in the life of his church, and friends, so it should be with us. We need to pray about new ministry opportunities. We need to pray about which elders or deacons should lead this church. We need to pray about what is our Sunday school lesson supposed to be if we're a Sunday school teacher. Or what are we supposed to do with our Awana class if we lead Awanas. We need to pray about how we spend money and decisions that are made, which missionaries we should should support, and so on and so forth. Friends, I just want to impress upon us that we as a church, we need to seek the Lord's direction. We need to seek His face in every aspect of our life together. The story is told of, a, of an old sailor 
back in the old days, who, he just wasn't a good sailor. He repeatedly got lost at sea, and so his friends decided to give him a compass. They, fig- they thought this would take care of the, the problem. So next time he went out, and of course he took his compass with him, but as usual, he became hopelessly lost, and so his friends, as usual, had to come and rescue him. Well, they were, of course, upset, impatient, rather disgusted. They said, why didn't you use the compass that we gave you? To which the sailor replied, I did. I wanted to go north, but just as hard as, as I tried to make that needle aim in that direction, it just kept on going southeast. See, the sailor was so certain, he was so certain that he knew which way north was, that he tried to force the compass to conform to him. Now friends, how many churches do the same with God? How many churches do the same with God? We think we know what is right. We think we, we, we know which way is north. We, we just say, this is our plans, and God, would you rubber stamp them? Would you bless them? Instead of seeking the Lord's face, genuinely seeking His direction, as the early church did. Friends, the, the early church, I'll call it the primitive church here, the, the early church prayed for guidance in making decisions. Will we here at Grace? Second, not only do we see the early church praying for guidance in decision-making, but let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Let's take a look at a a second example of corporate prayer. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to focus on verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It begins what is um, a summary section, the first summary section in the book of Luke. Let's just read verse 42 together. They devoted themselves, that is, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Like I mentioned, you can see in your Bible, starting in verse 42, it runs from verse 42 to verse 47. This is what is known as like a summary statement in the, in the book of Luke. Excuse me, the book of Acts. Can't get that right. The book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we get about three sort of summary statements as you move throughout the book. That sort of gives us a snapshot of what life was like in the early church. Luke steps away from specific stories, the narrative, to say, this is kind of how the early church lived life together. And this is the first of, of, of three that we get in this book. This section could be a whole sermon in itself. In fact, it has been a whole sermon in itself. But for our purposes in verse 42, notice uh, it says that they devoted themselves to these things. They devoted themselves to these things. This, this should be a familiar word to us if you were here for the last couple of weeks. Because last week we saw in chapter 1, the, the very first prayer meeting in the early church. And Luke tells us that the early church devoted themselves to corporate prayer. They devoted themselves to corporate prayer. Same word here. They devoted themselves. In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, two weeks ago, Paul tells the church, corporately, be faithful in prayer. Be devoted to corporate prayer. Same word here. So they they were committed as a church to doing at least four things. Did you notice them? First of all, they were committed to hearing God's voice. They were committed, if you will, to the word of God. It says they devoted themselves, number one, to the apostles' teachings. Second, they were committed to regularly sharing both time and their money and their goods and their life together. They were committed to being with God's people. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, number two, to fellowship. And then third, it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread, which likely means that they gathered together regularly just to enjoy a meal together, a good old-fashioned potluck, right? Hey, it's biblical, right? That's what they did. They ate together, right? And likely they also shared communion together while they ate together. And so they were committed to the Word of God. They were committed to sharing life's resources and time together. They spent time together. They were also committed to eating together, to communion. And then fourth, it says that they were devoted, the NIV here, they were, they were devoted to prayer. A more literal reading would read like, they devoted themselves to the prayers. So there's a definite article, to the, and it's plural. They were devoted to the prayers. And why that's significant is that likely indicates that they weren't sort of devoted to praying, like generally speaking, that they had set times in the life of the body of of Christ that they gathered together to pray. It likely followed the Jewish calendar of praying uh, during particular times of the day. In fact, we see in chapter 3 that Luke, excuse me, Peter and John do just that. And so what we see here is that the early church, as a part of what they regularly did together, is they gathered together to pray. As we saw last week, corporate prayer must be a part of the regular life of a healthy New Testament church. It must be a part of this New Testament church. You could say it's a part, uh, it's a part of a balanced diet, a, a balanced diet of word, of fellowship, of communion, and of prayer. And so the early church regularly prayed together. On that point, pastor and author, author John MacArthur says this. He says, sadly, sadly, prayer is much neglected in the church today. Programs, concerts, entertainments, or testimonies of the famous draw large crowds. Prayer meetings, on the other hand, attract only the faithful few. Friends, if he's right, if John MacArthur is right, then the question that I have is, why is that the case? Why is that? Certainly there are a myriad of reasons. Myriad of reasons. But I tend to agree with Leonard Ravenhill, pastor of old Leonard Ravenhill, British evangelist, pastor, author, He once wrote these words. This is his explanation. He says, Sunday morning attendance, Sunday morning attendance shows how popular the church is. Sunday night, back when churches had Sunday night, and some still do, Sunday night shows how popular the preacher is. And then he writes these words. Wednesday, or prayer meeting, shows how popular God is. Because when we gather together to pray, We gather together for the explicit purpose of seeking God. That's why we're there, to seek the Lord. And so the primitive church, the early church, they prayed for guidance in decision-making. They prayed as just the regular part of church life. But number three, if you want to turn ahead to chapter four, chapter four, we see that the early church prayed when they faced opposition. They prayed together when they faced opposition. We'll focus on verses 23 through 31. The prayer that we see offered here corporately by the church really uh, is a response. 
this prayer is a response to things that happened back in chapter 3. So let me just sum it up for you. If you read in chapter 3, we see that Peter and John uh, are going to the temple, likely to pray. They're going during the hour of prayer, and, uh, and they see someone there in need, right? They heal, in the name of Jesus, a lame man. And there's a miracle that happens there in the temple in Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, that creates quite a commotion. It creates uh, quite a stir. And, as you would expect, it attracts a crowd. And so a crowd has, has, has gathered to see what has happened in this miracle. And so Peter, as the leader of the apostles, takes the opportunity. He sees a captive audience, and he preaches to them. He preaches the gospel of Jesus to them. Many people believe as a result of that miracle and as a result of his preaching. And Luke tells us that the church grows to about 5,000. And so it began at about 120, right? And then as we make our way into chapter 4, it it mushrooms to 5,000 people. So now we we jump ahead into chapter 4. The priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees, sort of the religious leaders of the temple... We see that they put these two apostles in jail that night, and then the next morning comes around, and court is going to be in session. Yes, the Sanhedrin, it is known, the Jewish high court. These are the very same men, this is the very same Sanhedrin that condemned and crucified Jesus. And so, you know, here now are Jesus' followers before the very same men. They're put on trial for what happened. And so Peter sees a captive audience, and what do you think he does? He preaches to them, right? He shares the gospel to them. They deliberate amongst themselves. They say, we can't deny the miracle. It happened, so what should we do? And essentially they say, let's just tell them to shut up. Just tell them to be quiet. And so they say, you two, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop it. Just stop it. And Peter is like, uh, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. We're not going to stop. We're, we're going to listen to God and not men. And so they warn them, they threaten them, and then they release them. Okay. So the guys in verse 23 return to the church. They report what has happened. And then the church does what? Just put yourself in, the, in those, those men and women's shoes. The apostles are coming back. They're sharing. Man, we're facing opposition here. You know, that same group that killed Jesus? Well, you know, they, they're, they're threatening us. They're on us. They could respond in fear. They could shrink back. They could say, well, let's think about a plan to, to how we're supposed to manage this. They could, they could do a whole number of things. But what, friends, what does the early church do collectively when they face opposition for their faith? They hit their knees. They hit their knees. They pray. It's their gut instinct. And so the prayer begins in verse 24, and it's a wonderful prayer. But we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 29 as they begin to make their requests. So what are they going to ask the Lord to do in light of this opposition? Verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So there's the request. What happened? Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I love it. What do they ask for? In light of the opposition, the men are saying, "Don't, don't speak up. What do they ask God? Help us to be bold to speak up, right? Help us, help us do that. Two things they essentially ask. Number one, they say, God, make us bold. Enable your servants to speak with great boldness. Number two, they say, please, God, let there be supernatural confirmation of the message that we're sharing. Stretch out your hand, they say. And God answers their prayers immediately. I really like what one of the great church fathers, John Chrysostom, He's the pastor of a city called Constantinople. He's one of the early church fathers. He, he commented on this particular event, and he said this. He says, the place was shaken. The place was shaken, and that made them all the more unshaken. Isn't that great? They were unshaken by these events. And friends, I would submit to you that these are the same items that we also, collectively as a church, need to be praying for. Let me ask a question. Do we as a church need boldness to share Jesus with people? Yes or no? Yes, we do. We need boldness. So why are we not praying for it? Together. Together. Why are we not praying for it? Do we need God to to supernaturally intervene in the life of unbelievers that we're involved with? Do we need Him to come and to open their eyes so that Satan doesn't blind their minds any longer? Do we need their hearts to be to be to become softened, to be made from hearts of stone to heart, heart of flesh? Do we need the Holy Spirit to do work in our, in our in our preaching and our gospel sharing? Yes. Do we need that same Holy Spirit that they asked and received? Yes. And so, friends, what should we do? We should pray together. We should pray together. Number four. They prayed for guidance. They prayed regularly together. They prayed when they faced opposition. And I'm skipping, by the way, a wonderful story of corporate prayer in chapter 12. And the reason I'm skipping it is because it's a prayer when Peter is in jail. Herod is about to murder him. And the church is in crisis mode. Their leader is about to have his head removed. And so what do they do? They come together in somebody's house... And they're like, we're going to pray all night long. And they're praying. And God delivers Peter miraculously. It's a great story. Since we had a, a, a sermon on praying during times of crisis, I just thought we're going to, we're going to skip it. But, but read it. It's a wonderful story. But let's turn as we close to chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, just one chapter beyond. Because there we see uh, just another characteristic of the early church. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, 1 through 3. We see that the early church prayed for new gospel opportunities. They prayed for new gospel opportunities. The count uh, of this church praying in chapter 13, the church of Antioch, is actually a continuation of the story of the church born in the city of Antioch back in chapter 11. So let me just summarize. Back in chapter 11, there's the story of this Gentile church being born. People believe the gospel and a church is born in the city of Antioch. We see that there was persecution happening to the Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And so they scatter. They leave their hometowns. And one of the places they go is the city of Antioch. And they're like, well, since we're displaced from our homes, we might as well share the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Like Christians, the early Christians, like, meh, well, we got kicked out of our home. What should we do? Let's share the gospel. 
That's what they did. They share the gospel. A church is born there, mostly Gentile church, is born in the city of Antioch. And so, in response to this Gentile church, the, the mother church, if you will, in Jerusalem, which is mostly Jewish, they send uh, Barnabas. They're like, Barnabas, go check it out. See what's going on there, right? The Gentiles have become Christians. You go check it out. So, so Barnabas goes to confirm and to encourage this new church. And he, he's like, I need some help doing this. I need a helper. And so who do you think he brings along? Paul or Saul? And so he brings along Paul and Saul, and they spend a year together in that city. As the story continues, chapter 11 and 12, they hear of a famine. There's a prophet who says, hey, there's going to be a famine in the church of Jerusalem, and it's going to affect them. And so this Gentile church in Antioch, guess what? They love their brothers and sisters in Christ because they've been born again. And so they, they gather money, and they send that money to the church in Jerusalem via Barnabas and Saul. They deliver that gift to the church, and then Barnabas and Saul return to the church of Antioch, chapter 13. Okay, you with me? Okay, so they're back at the, at the city, at the church, and we pick up in verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and we get a list, Barnabas, Barnabas Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, Saul Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, notice that, they were worshiping, they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. And thus we see the first uh, of three missionary journeys of Paul begin. And so let's look at the text briefly here. After in verse 1, there's a listing of the prominent prophets and teachers that God blessed this church with in verse 1. We hear that they were, in IV, they were worshiping the Lord. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The word worshiping here, literally it means like ministering. Uh, more literally, they were ministering to the Lord. And this word implies both worship in song and prayer. And so what... This, let me paint a picture for you. What was this church doing? Just like, this is like what they do, right? Regularly in the life of this church, what were they just regularly doing? They were worshiping. They were praising the Lord. They were praying. They were fasting just as a regular part of what they do. And then what happened? It was because they were seeking the Lord in prayer that God spoke. The Holy Spirit sort of tapped them on the shoulder and says, hey, I've got a mission for two of your, 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 your guys. I've got a mission for you, right? So they were praying, and new mission is born from a church that prays. And really, this is a huge, a huge hinge in, in, in the book. See, thus far in, in the book of Acts, mostly Jews have become Christians. And the church that was born was, was mostly Jewish. There were Gentile conversions. You have the Ethiopian eunuch. You have Cornelius in chapter 10. And then this church in Antioch, they were, they were non-Jewish. But that was just sort of sporadic. It was not like it was planned. But, but what we have here is that there's a, a, a turning point from Jewish emphasis to Gentile emphasis. It's a huge, new, uh, God-breathed mission 
that is going to happen in this book. And why did it happen? That's the question that's before us. What spurned this missionary movement in the early church to go beyond the Jews and to go to the Gentiles? What was it? Prayer. Do you see that? It was prayer that led to this. Friends, it, it almost always works that way. It almost always works that way. While the mechanics of this call may or may not look like it did in the book of Acts, I would submit that prayer, particularly corporate prayer, is a vital means for a local church to hear God's voice on what it is that they are to be doing. We, we need to be listening God, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? What is our mission field? What does it look like? And prayer becomes a vehicle for hearing God whisper His will to us. To illustrate it, maybe a bad illustration, but I'm going to roll with it anyways. Maybe you're familiar with the book and the movie uh, Horton Hears a Who. You ever read that before or, or seen that, Horton Hears a Who? Okay, so, so basically there's a, an elephant named Horton, and he becomes aware that there's this city called, what? Whoville, yeah, that. Whoville, and they're this itty-bitty, right? A speck of dust, right? Um, but he can, he can hear them, right? Uh, but they can't hear him. And so the mayor, as in the image behind me, he ends up building this device so that he can hear the voice of this giant being called Horton. Okay, we can move on from that illustration. You could say that corporate prayer is like the hearing device of the mayor. It enables us to hear the voice of a big God speaking to his small creatures. God, what is it that you want? What is it that we are to be doing? The link between corporate prayer and fresh and new movements of God has been true throughout church history. For instance, J. Edwin Orr once said this. He says, No great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. Matthew Henry, commentator, adds this. He says, When God wants to do something special in the world, He first gets His people to start praying. So friends, if we want God to do new things in our church and in our community, what do we need to be doing? We need to be praying. We'll end with an illustration. I think uh, a good example of this is a, a gentleman who lived a, a long time ago. His name was Jeremiah Lanfear. Jeremiah Lanfear. So in 1857, this quiet 46-year-old businessman, he lived in New York City. He just worked. He was a businessman. He felt led to the Lord to take his lunch hour and to pray. And so he would pray during his lunch hour. And then he said, I'm going to ask some of my Christian co-workers to pray with me during my lunch hour. And so uh, he invited them. The first time that he prayed during his lunch hour, after offering an invitation, how many people showed up? Uh, goose eggs, right? He, so he was, he was discouraged. But he did it again. And then next week, six people, six people joined him in prayer. And the next week, 40 of his co-workers joined him in prayer. Eventually, the, the meeting at his little business corporation swelled to over 100 people. And so they were praying over lunch. As the story goes, within six months, within six months, there were 10,000 Christians meeting to pray during the lunch hour in New York City. This was a movement of God. Many church historians think that this was an integral part in the Great Awakening in North America, which was a two-year period where an estimated 2 million people out of a population of 26 million people in the States 
came to Christ. All because of what? All because of prayer. And so friends, we're going to wrap up this way. The early church was a praying church. We must be a praying church. The question then is, will we? Will we be? Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would stir our hearts for you, first and foremost. That we would hunger and thirst for you. And that you would be the audience in which we seek in our prayers. Individually and then corporately. God, you you want to, to do something in this little church and in this little town and in this greater community. And yet... Um, Sometimes we have not because we ask not. And so God, help us to ask. Not only individually, but corporately. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Let's stand as we close with a benediction from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Would you... Let's read this together. Could we do that? Here we go. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people said, Amen. See you next week. See you tonight, 6 o'clock, right here.